Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. My guest today is Dr. Tyler Black. Tyler is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and suicidologist who has been in clinical practice for over 10 years. He is the medical director of emergency psychiatry at BC Children's Hospital. On top of clinical duties, he is an assistant clinical professor at the University of British Columbia and a researcher specializing in suicidology, psychopharmacology, and video games. Tyler is also the co-creator of Hearts Map, a psychosocial assessment and guidance tool for youth and emergency departments, and also the creator of ASARI, Assessment of Suicide and Risk Inventory, a documentation tool for clinicians who are assessing or noticing suicide risk. In this episode, Tyler and I spoke about the impact of school closures on youth mental health, the politicization of suicide during COVID-19, the ineffectiveness of suicide prevention programs, and the future prospects for psychiatry. Some exciting news for Confronting the Madness. My new introductory music has recently been nominated for a Juno Award in the Best New Intro Music category. Roll it! Uh, Dr. Tyler Black, uh, welcome to Confronting the Madness. Thanks so much for for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Tyler and I know each other through a very intimate circle called Twitter, um, and I've been very impressed by his threads on a number of issues, including suicide, school closures, and other matters related to mental health. Um, Tyler is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and the medical director of the Children and Adolescent Psychiatric Emergency Department at the BC Children's Hospital in Vancouver, BC, where he has worked with thousands of families during his 12-year tenure. Tyler is also a suicidologist, emergency psychiatrist, and psychopharmacologist. Um, So amongst all those things, which to me, um, I guess the first question I'm curious about is, to be a child and adolescent psychiatrist in and of itself uh, must be a very, very challenging job. And to be a, a suicidologist and an emergency psychiatrist um, seems to be highly, highly stressful. So I'm just wondering um, how you've coped with uh, your workload during the last 15 months of the pandemic. Is yeah. it and then maybe could you just walk through some of the ebbs and flows of the demand? Because I know early on in Edmonton that I think a lot of folks were maybe staying away from hospitals just because of the fear of the uh, pandemic. And I'm just wondering from your perspective, how your, yeah. how it's all been for you for the last 15 months. It's, it's been, it's been rough. You know, I've actually uh, just started a three month leave um, after going pretty much straight for the whole pandemic. Um, 
you know, we did have pretty much every area in medicine had that initial month when the pandemic first started, where things really just cooled off as we got ready mm -hmm. for we, we a lot of it wasn't that we weren't busy, um, because what we were actually doing was preparing for surges, what would happen if right. Uh, there was a pandemic outbreak in one of the units in the hospital. Where would the kids go? Um, what would we do if there was a psychiatric emergency with someone who was COVID positive? Um, like there was a lot of preparation work during that time. So we're actually very thankful that, you know, we didn't see the surge of, of presentations at the same time. It would have made it all the more challenging. Uh, fortunately, for kids in BC, um, the, the hospitals never did get... Um, overwhelmed, um, uh, the, especially children's hospital didn't get overwhelmed. So we were always sort of at capacity, but there was a really interesting phenomenon during the, the pandemic, which was, you know, if you were in cardiac surgery, if you were in ophthalmology, if you were doing, <clears throat> if you were doing things that were procedural, maybe you were mm -hmm. a, a general pediatrician, there was a significant decrease in the number of presentations during the, the heights of mm -hmm. the pandemic. And you would see this, um, you know, uh, reflected in emergency department presentation numbers and all these types of things. But for mental health, it was just steady. Um, you, know, you know, there's this there's this media narrative and a, a common narrative, um, uh, uh, you know, especially on social media, that, mm -hmm. you know, there's this flood of kids presenting to emergency departments, but with with psychiatric concerns, but really, what it is, is just a relative difference, because everything else decreased, but mental health just mm -hmm. kept on chugging. And, and though our numbers are um, they're high. They're not record highs. Um, you know, we've mm. I've I've been doing this for twelve years. Um, I remember a strong surge in two thousand twelve, and a really big surge in two thousand seventeen, and you know, twenty twenty was kind of at those levels. So it wasn't this unprecedented tsunami of presentations, mm -hmm. but it was it was pretty busy, mm -hmm. uh, such to the point that you know, um, we started to get pretty overwhelmed and fatigued. Um, you know, everybody's a little bit more irritable. You can't can't do a lot of the team building things that used to do in hospitals like mm -hmm. hang out and have lunch together let's go right. for a walk yeah. you have to go to your room and sit and eat lunch by yourself and so everybody's just a little bit more irritable things um things are a little bit more challenging so um you know uh i was in a position where i started to have some health problems in in february so i decided to take a few months off um and i've just affected that starting now but um uh, I can't, I can't deny it. it's probably been the most stressed I've been in my 12 years. And I, like you wow. said, I'm an emergency child psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I'm high stress all the time. And this was, uh, this was a, a, a big peak of stress for sure. And was, and was the stress, I mean, was it just the, the unknowns and, and the changing, uh, dynamic of COVID or, and mm -hmm. also having to isolate from your peers and not having that social interaction, like all I mean, those combination of things. Yeah, it's got to be all those things. You know, the the stress of the own never bothers me because I'm an emergency psychiatrist. I mm -hmm. I accept whatever's coming. You know, I, I like to prepare. Um, a lot of physicians, a lot of people in healthcare like to operate by algorithms, and I never do that. I operate by principles, and when you operate by principles, they never fail. Um, so I, I never feel like I'm unprepared for something that's coming. Um, but it was a lot of the isolation from my peers. I, I worked really hard to do a lot of team building. Um, you know, this is a very high stress job. And so our nurses and social workers, um, physicians, residents, medical students, we would regularly, and I mean like regularly, I'd pick up lunch for them and bring it. We all sit on the mm -hmm. deck and we'd all sit at a table somewhere and chat about how things are going and just removing that ability to de-stress 
to have that camaraderie, I think really, really affected things a lot. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then watching, you know, everyone else had to do pandemic stuff, but they had less clinical work. In mental health, we had to do pandemic stuff plus all of our clinical work uh, with a mm -hmm. slightly reduced population of clinicians because some people due to age or illness weren't able to come into work. Mm. So, um, so, so it was kind of like um, everyone else got the space and time to breathe and plan and we didn't. Uh, so, so it was very, it was very challenging. And so at the front, I think this was more maybe, maybe back into spring of 2020, uh, you, you had written a, a long thread on Twitter about school closures, whether they're good or bad. And mm -hmm. maybe just talk to you, the audience about your perspective on school closures given yeah. today is May 6th and um, <clears throat> in Alberta, I don't know about the rest of the province, presumably all across the country, um, schools are, are going online from K to 12. And that's obviously having impacts on me as, as a, as a father. Um, sure. Talk about the broader impacts and, and the pros and cons, I guess, that you, yeah, school closures. I was I was pleasantly surprised to see how viral that that thread went. Mm -hmm. You know, it's so viral. I wrote it, I think, in July. Maybe it was June. I can't remember when I wrote it. Um, but every now and then I'll get a flood of German retweets. And I'm like, oh, it's spreading in Germany right now. I'll get a flood of retweets in, you know, the Netherlands. I'm like, oh, OK, now I get to translate Dutch. And, and it resonates with a group of people. Um, what I saw that was really frustrating around the time that I wrote it um, was in the discussion about should we return to school? Remember, this was after the first wave. Mm -hmm. um, there was still no vaccine. Uh, there was um, uncertainty about what to do because schools had largely shut down across um, North America and then went online and then some hybriding. Uh, we had just a scarcity of data of what to do with mm -hmm. kids because most of the research wasn't involving kids. Um, even in BC, they don't test kids. It's so rare to get tests of kids. Um, and it wasn't, wasn't until a few months ago that tests of kids were routine. So we were really operating with an unknown set of circumstances. And then I saw this dynamic play out that one side wanted all the schools to be shut down to protect mm -hmm. kids. Mm -hmm. And another side wanted the schools to be open and I could tell that there was a political difference between these two groups, yeah. uh, largely the ones that would have, you know, pro-Trumpy messages or mm -hmm. um, maybe a little bit of an anti-vaccine message or an anti-COVID generally. There's some COVID denialism, those types of mm -hmm. things would be on the side of schools opening. But there was also that general right bend of the economy is more important than human lives. Mm -hmm. And you saw some really gross things like, well, you know, the weaker people will die. But, you know, if you're healthy, you'll survive. And you're like, whoa, you know, how eugenic do you want to get in this conversation? Um, and on the other maybe side, that was those, maybe that was those German tweeters. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was, you know, honestly, um, I have to say a lot of it came. I, I'm, I'm still surprised how much of it came from Ontario. Um, mm -hmm. Ontario online um, just has a really strong, very strong right wing group that seems to have this conflation of right wing politics plus anti science, um, mm -hmm. and it, it's 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 interesting to see it coming out of of Canada. But um, on the other side, you had people just totally protectionism about the virus. Um, we have to lock down everything forever, and and. What I wanted to try and do in my in my thread is is show the nuances between the two. Of course, mm -hmm. we want kids to be at school whenever it's possible to do so, whenever the virus um, 
is maybe not rampaging in that community whenever there's adequate you know protections for teachers and 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 kids of course we want kids in school at the same time this idea that returning to school promotes mental health is just counter to everything i've done for 12 years the busiest times of my life are when school is going and the mm -hmm. least busy times in my life are when school is off Right. And I'll remind everybody, I'm an emergency psychiatrist. So right. every kid who presents in crisis in BC, I know about. Um, you know, I, I hear about them. We see the numbers. We, we get hundreds of kids, thousands of kids at BC Children's Hospital. And our peak times are school days and our mm -hmm. off times are non-school days. Mm -hmm. And that's because school is a major driver of stress for kids. Mm -hmm. uh, academic performances, family conflict over school, um, time management, social issues, bullying, you know, all, even teacher abuse. I mean, everything that that we put onto schools is not noble. Schools are are daycares that weren't really designed to be daycares. They're lunch programs that weren't really designed to be lunch programs. Um, and and there are social hierarchies in schools that make schools really rough places for some kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, 15 years ago, it was not fun to be a gay or trans kid in a school. Um, and today it's still, still not fun, mm -hmm. uh, although it's getting better and there's still racialization, minoritization, you know, whole bunch of, uh, bullying. Um, and then there's all the academic loads. Um, you know, uh, so, so what I wanted to do in my tweet thread is really, really articulate that schools are a cause of stress. So if we, if we are thinking about returning to school, we can take the gas pedal off. We don't need to push so hard to get kids learning everything they were learning in grade six. Like, okay, maybe they won't learn about the aorta, you know, in grade six, right. maybe they'll learn it right. in grade seven. You know, this isn't some great loss for humanity. Mm -hmm. There has to be some balance between opening schools when it's possible, closing schools when it's necessary. And, and when schools are open, recognizing that we have to change a lot about schools to make them safer for kids and their mental health. You know, before the pandemic, I was advocating all the time for schools to be less focused on academics, give less homework, be more flexible with time, don't count attendance like it's some kind of hero's badge. Mm -hmm. um, I'm currently taking time off because I'm not feeling well. That's what you're right. supposed to do. Mm -hmm. um, and if we want to encourage healthy kids, we have to make schools a lot safer. So um, so I, I was pleased to see that it went well. Um, it was well received. I think it's interpreted more as an anti-lock, as a pro-lockdown thing than I've intended it to be. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm always, I'm always very clear that I believe that schools should be the last thing to close and the first thing to open in a pandemic. Like you shouldn't have yeah. bars open and schools closed. That makes no sense. Yeah. Um, yeah but no, it, it's yeah. interesting. I forgot um, the main thrust of the thread was around. Um, because again, this is there's been so many interesting political uh, left versus right around psychological well-being through the pandemic. Yeah. This this was one of those where yeah um, the right was saying you need to keep schools open because that's beneficial for their mental health or or it's it's detrimental yeah. for their mental health. They Whereas were you're saying actually um, that's not true based on the evidence, right? Yeah, and, and schools themselves can be challenging. You know, I, it was it was really gross. You know, I've I've done suicidology now for twelve years, and I've never seen suicides pol politicized in this way, mm -hmm. where the evocation of children dying by suicide was used in a political argument to open schools. Mm -hmm. um, you know, kids are going to die by suicide. You want a whole bunch of kids to die by suicide, mm -hmm. and and 
you know, here I am with the knowledge of, you know, suicide being a, a major killer of kids. Um, you know, in the first four decades of life, it's in Canada, number one or two, depending on the year you look at it. But at the same time, it's still a rare event. And right. a, a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of people are going to die of COVID in Canada. <clears throat> and it's not even going to get, you know, the number of suicides that are going to occur aren't aren't even close. Um, and, and so to see this over amplification of suicide for a political aim, it was it was heart wrenching. It was gross. It it um, I could just imagine every family I've worked with who's had someone die by suicide to see their child's life summed up on, you know, can they go to school or not? Right. Well, right. a lot of the kids who die by school, die by suicide, went to school. Was, and, yeah. and maybe and, there's a, and, fa a factor in there. There's definitely, yeah. you know, most yeah. of the times we look at causative factors. You know, it's very hard when someone dies by suicide to look at what caused it because you can't ask the one person who right. knows best. Um, but school stresses are found in about half of the cases of, of child suicide. Um, you know, it, it, it's it's usually a close second um, or or first over or, you know, family stress, uh, family stress and school stress being um, the big drivers of suicide in kids. And just just to take a step back, um, curious why why did you want to become a psychiatrist and then the, mm -hmm. the suicidologist? Like, what 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 was your motivation for for the work that you do today? Yeah, well, I I, I wanted to be a doctor since I was like in grade eight. <laughs> I just I watched an episode of ER and I think Eric <laughs> LaSalle was playing Peter Benton and he did some awesome surgery and he did the fist pump in the hallway and I was like I want to be that guy. Um, and and I was just singularly focused on getting into medical school. It was like something I really wanted. I'm I've always been someone who who cares a lot about other people and really does like I really do want um, people to suffer less. And I thought. Well, you know, if I can do this, I'd like to try. So I worked, worked, worked. And as I got through undergraduate at the University of Alberta and stuff like that, I started to work in a lab for psychopharmacology. I was doing my pharmacology degree and um, and it opened up this entirely, I don't want to say it's like untouched, but mm -hmm. I mean, the amount of research that's necessary in mental health Mm -hmm. for us to fully understand what's going on inside people's heads, mm -hmm. both, the, both the thinking processes as well as the biological processes yeah. and all the factors and influence. I mean, I wonder if we'll ever get there. You know, I wonder if we'll ever have the mastery of the brain that, that we have, say, of the heart or, um, or, or we have of, of, say, joints or those types of mm -hmm. things. Um, but um, I saw this, like, untapped field, and I was like, man... I'm such a curious person. I always mm -hmm. intellectualize and I always want to learn more. And I was like, there's so much to know in mental health. Um, so, so I started becoming quite interested in psychiatry. As I went through medical school, it was clear that I loved talking to patients. I didn't really like procedures that much. I was okay with them. I loved suturing. Um, like it's still one of my favorite things to do. And if I, I did it enough, I'd still do it, but obviously I don't do it enough to still do it. Um, but, but I, I love talking to patients. And then, um, you know, I, my first rotation was in psychiatry and my, my preceptor at the time was a psychiatrist by the name of Kathy Kredikas. And she told me this like maxim that I just held in my heart. She was like, hey, Tyler, you know, if you can do psychiatry, you should do psychiatry. Um, mm -hmm. It's not for everybody, but if you can do it, there's no reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. And as it came time to select my specialty, I just kind of held that in my head. And I realized that I love talking to patients. I'm really interested in the brain. I love the idea of, of venturing into uncharted territories where we don't know as much. Mm -hmm. um, 
and uh, and I'm always curious and I always want to be learning. So it became a pretty easy choice. And then my first day as a resident, um, I walked onto a, a unit and there had a it was a patient that had died. Now, obviously, I didn't know this this patient mm -hmm. because it was my first day, but I got to see the institutional, educational, human, family impacts of suicide, mm -hmm. and it was rough to see like my own preceptor, you know, when I first met them in their room, um, were crying, you know, and, mm -hmm. and I was like, hi, I'm, I'm here to start my rotation. And, and they're, they're sitting in their room crying. And, um, and I saw what a nuclear event, um, suicide was in, in an institution with a family, with caregivers. Mm -hmm. And then I, I did what I do. I, I intellectualize it and I started reading everything I could about suicide. And then I started to see this mismatch between the things that I was being taught and the things that I was reading. I was like, hmm. our teaching is a little out of date here. <laughs> like we're, oh, yeah. we're using this mnemonic called sad persons to try and figure out if someone's suicidal or not. And the research is basically saying that sad persons is no good and it actually doesn't work. And I'm like, oh my goodness. So as I started to research it more and more, I realized that, hey, this is an area that I know better than the people that are teaching me. And so I started teaching suicide risk assessment as a resident. Um, oh. And then from that point forward, um, I, I set myself up with a, a regular program of, and I still do it to this day, where I, I make sure that I'm, I'm reading constantly new suicide research. I have like Google alerts and I have, yeah. um, you know, PubMed sending me new articles and these types of things so that I'm always staying abreast of it. And what I try and do is I try to incorporate it into my knowledge. So I have this very large database of papers, but I also, every time I read a new paper, I try and think of what do I currently know about suicide that this would change? And that's where I find a lot of these more interesting threads that I'll post or those types of things. You know, mm -hmm. if I see an article that says, you know, we, we saw this, or we didn't see this. I'm like, well, currently the orthodoxy says this one thing, and here's how this paper challenges that. Mm -hmm. And, and with suicide, if, if you always think, how do I add more nuance to my knowledge? You're, you're, you're really understanding suicide because suicide is so complicated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, people love to distill it down to its basics, but it's really complicated and interesting. Right. And so when you call yourself a suicidologist, maybe mm -hmm. break down is what that means to, I was going to say to the audience, but I really mean to me. <laughs> <laughs> but well, it's, it started with just basically, you know, an ologist is someone who studies something and, and suicidologists are people that study suicide. But as I started teaching and doing a few papers and, and writing a few things about it, I started to become, um, you know, I started to re recognize that, um, you know, suicidology is a combination of fields. So obviously, you can go very much into the clinical side and what's happening for the individual. Mm -hmm. You can go very much onto the epidemiology side and what's happening in a population. Mm -hmm. um, you can get very um, social about it and see how social factors, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, go on to it. Um, so, you know, like there's entire fields of research looking at uh, the discrepancies in suicide rates between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and so, you know, it's a, it's a very broad field that can be very technical, very personal, very social, large or small. Um, I, I tend to stay a little bit more on the epidemiological side. Like I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I like to have my hands in data, but then my clinical work always draws me back to the very one-on-one -on -one personal. And, and this notion of at some point there'll be some clinician or some family member that's worried about their, the person in front of them, suicide risk. And what do I do about that? Mm -hmm. It's scary. It's confusing. It's, 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 there's, 
I can't think of anything where you feel more lost than when you're trying to save someone from suicide. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so even though my research interests really get me more into the public health epidemiology side, clinically, I'm always drawn to that. You know, you've got one person who's really suffering. You have other people that are trying to help them. Some of their help is helpful. Some of their help is not. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and then worse in psychiatry, we have a number of responses that aren't helpful and, and mm -hmm. we should be very helpful for people and families who are dealing with suicide. So it's, can, a, can it's we, a super interesting topic. Can we just uh, talk about some practical matters related to, su to suicide? Sure. And, you know, one of the things that it's always, because a lot of things you said about why you went into psychiatry are a lot of the same reasons why I'm interested in, in mental health and, and psychological mm -hmm. issues. The suicide prevention strategies, um, how you talk to somebody who may be suicidal, um, and, and you just mentioned something, um, things that psychiatrists do that aren't beneficial. Could you maybe talk through how you think about our current suicide prevention strategies? And then secondly, what what to do if you are an individual that has been confronted with a friend or family member who has yeah. uh, mentioned that they're thinking about um, suicide. And then lastly, and sorry for the three prong question, but what are some of the things that psychiatry can do to improve um, mm -hmm. with respect to suicide? Yeah, I think, uh, so I'll start first with, um, you know, when someone's confronting someone they care about being suicidal, I always think about what are the public messages they've received so far? And, and often these are things like call a number mm -hmm. and, you know, reach out and call someone and their suicide hotlines and these types of things. And I never mean to disparage the work that those places do, but that's not really prevention. That's mm -hmm. like, I have someone who's suicidal. I, I want to, I want to help them. It's a little bit more like putting out a fire once it started. Um, so we wouldn't really call, you know, a firefighter putting out a building um, prevention right. in this. <laughs> and so. You know, I think a lot of our messaging, unfortunately, it creates this othering. Are you suicidal? Call this number. And I'd love there to be a larger conversation that all of us at any point are at varying degrees of suicide risk. Now, I'm personally, I don't believe I'll ever die of suicide. And I, I certainly don't think I would. But you could put me in situations where I'd consider it. Um, if you diagnosed me with ALS and and I had months to live and I was going to deteriorate, I might apply for medical assistance in dying right. in Canada. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, if I was on top of a burning building and I had the choice of burning to death, um, dying with smoke inhalation or jumping, I might jump. Um, mm -hmm. If I was abducted by a terrorist organization and they were threatening to behead me and I saw something that could you know end my life quickly, I might do that. Um, you know, and, and I always use those extreme examples to remind people that when people are considering suicide, often it's the solution to a confronted problem. Like it's a solution mm -hmm. to something they're dealing with. Yeah. And all we have to do is turn up the screws of distress and then we'd all be there. We'd all consider mm -hmm. it. We'd all mm -hmm. think about it. Um, and in the same way, so this idea that there's people out there that are suicidal and there's people out there that are not is really, it's really not a great way to look at it. Um, I like to look at it more of like the influences. So when someone's having suicidal thoughts, you, you want to be less about you should do this and a little bit more about what's going on for you. Mm. How can I help? Is there anything I can do? Let me add you, let me add myself to your problem solving strategies. Um, 
And this is the type of universal response that can actually work. For example, if I had ALS and someone said, how can I help you? And I said, well, you know, I can't afford my wheelchair. Mm-hmm. You know, let's find a program that gets you a wheelchair. You know, like, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a universal response that even in the extreme situations can help. And then in the people who maybe aren't at the level of having strong suicidal thoughts, but they just want to talk, it opens up the conversation in a non-judgmental way. So I always like to tell people, if you really want to help people, try to be less informative of what they should do and more Mm -hmm. listening as to what's going on for them. How can I help you? And if they open the door and say, I can't figure out anything, I can't figure out how to help myself here, that's when you can offer suggestions. But but people like to start with their suggestions. You know, I've been Mm -hmm. feeling really depressed for a weekend. Oh, you should exercise more. It's not like, oh, what's been going on for you? (laughs) What's what's, what are your pressures? Mm -hmm. You know, so so I, I think having a little bit more of a general curiosity for what's going on for the person. And then recognizing that when you're trying to help someone off, you can't be, um, you can't be superficial about it. You should call this number. It, you know, it, it sounds a lot like talk to that other person, to right, the person who's right. suicidal. Um, let's call this number together. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll sit here with you. Let's see what it's like. If that's not good, maybe maybe I'll call my doctor and I'll ask what I should do. Or I could call a suicide hotline and ask what I should do for my friend if you're too scared to call. You know, like it, it's it some of this messaging comes across a little bit as haven't you considered doing X? And it's, of course they've considered it. (laughs) They need help. So, so I'd like to see a little bit more personal connection when it comes to helping people. And, and if you're someone who's carrying that burden of worrying about someone, you also have to recognize that you're carrying a burden that you can't fully care. There's nothing we can do to completely control or change or modify someone's motivations. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to approach it with the, I'm going to do everything I can to help you. But ultimately what they do is their own decision approach. And I see a lot of people who, who will take the approach of, they're not going to do that on my watch. Mm. Well, it's really setting yourself up for, for being very disappointed in yourself, for suffering yourself, uh, for trying to do the impossible. Right. You know, I, I know many people who've who've had people in their life who've died by suicide who've really felt like they've missed warning signs. And I've always wanted to reach out to those people and say, those warning signs are really, really general and they would not have been very helpful to you right. in the moment. Right. You know, like <laughs> looking more sad is a warning sign. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do we do with that? So um, so I think if you if you take a nuanced approach to suicide, it always benefits you. And in the same way curious and open and connected and caring um, helps out a lot. And and do you think that government created suicide prevention strategies are, have been, have have they been a good use of, of money? Like, you know, like when you see in Edmonton, they had um, this campaign around, I don't know, it was like 12 people every day die by suicide or something just to highlight it like is that actually beneficial from a from a evidence-based perspective i think awareness about suicide is is unnecessary um because suicide is is just a pervasively you know i work with kids kids understand suicide by age eight nine ten you know like i don't think we need a lot of awareness about suicide as a problem Mm -hmm. and and then there's always this kind of counter pressure of the more you bring suicide into the news, 
you wonder, am I having any sort of contagion effect? And contagion is is controversial in a number of areas. I'm not sure that public messaging about suicide causes contagion at all, mm-hmm. but you have to be cautious about it. Is yep. your messaging, um, you know, a self-fulfilling prophecy? Like mm-hmm. you talk about suicide all the time. Are you going to create someone um, thinking more about suicide? But, um, I, I, you know, I know that there's government ways to make it work. Um, so you look at, you know, the famous example I always use is Japan, which is almost always held up as this area where everybody's dying by suicide all the time. And certainly 14 years ago, their suicide rate was astronomical, about 28 to 30 per 100,000 per year, which is about wow. double what Canada's or triple what Canada's is now. Triple. But they've had a su- sustained government effort to reduce suicides. It's, it's, it's everything. It's um, making sure that their subways have suicide barriers. It's um, messaging. It's more social supports. It's restrictions on work hours. It's um, supporting seniors. It's uh, it's like a pan-government approach. Mm-hmm. And in 2020, their suicide rate was 16 per 100,000 per year. Wow. So, so, they so it came down really, really, really significantly, almost mm-hmm. half. Wow. And, and so... I can, you know, there's been really successful efforts. You know, there were there were farmers in in Venezuela, I believe, that were dying of pesticide overdose, and so the government started rationing the pesticide as opposed to giving people big, letting people buy big, um, you know, bags of pesticide. And sure enough, suicide rates um, plummeted in in Venezuela when that happened. It's so means restriction, I think, would be a really mm-hmm. good thing. You know, we do have a gun problem in Canada. We we like to point at America all the time and talk about mm-hmm. their gun problems. But uh, um, by far and away, um, gun deaths in Canada are suicides. Mm. Um, and uh, and and so means restriction comes into it. I think the government has to get more serious about that. But then I think more about the 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 just the basics. And we don't have real time data collection. It, you know, we're not going to get our pandemic answers of what's happened in Canada till late 2021 or early mm-hmm. 2022. How can you possibly be reflexive with suicide knowledge when it takes you years to get data? Right. So, and, sorry, why why is that? Just not <clears throat> enough funding or effort by the federal government to? It's the organizational structure, the hierarchy. You know, coroners mm-hmm. investigate deaths that are suspicious, and any death in which suicide might be involved is 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 investigated, and those investigations take time, but you know, there's not really this national network of data collection. And with the frequency of suicide, you know, the numbers I'll often cite are per 100,000 people, 10 per 100,000 per year. Right. So I'll I'll give you an example of a town, say like Kelowna, um, which has 300,000, 400,000 people. I don't know what it is at this point. Um, Three three or four suicides. You know, what sort of epidemiology can you do around three or four suicides per year? You need to be doing larger national collections. so, so there has to be this concerted effort to get real-time data. For example, it could start with suspicious deaths, you know, bringing those in and, and what, are the, what are the demographics of those people, then the results of the investigations. <clears throat> Instead, what we do right now is we wait for the coroners to issue a final cause of death, and then that is sent to Stats Canada, and then Stats Canada gets it and then publishes it after they process the data. So you're looking at a year and a half lag to getting oh, wow. suicide information in Canada. So for um, the pandemic, we won't really have good data on that for the foreseeable future. Is that? It's going to take till the end of the year. I'm, yeah. I'm sure. Um, 
I think they're working harder and faster. I wouldn't be surprised if we have something in the next few months for Canada, um, because a lot of the coroners have already released their data. Um, so we have BC, um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Nova Scotia has real-time public reporting. Um, Nova Scotia, just a great example of public health, by the way. If you want to see public health done right, okay. Nova Scotia yeah. does a great job, especially uh, both suicide and pandemic-related. Um, Toronto, uh, Ontario is notoriously slow. Um, mm. Like it takes them a very, very long time to get their suicide data in. Manitoba slow as well. So, you know, I, I think we might see some good data for Canada. Um, the U.S. has been pushing. Um, I know a lot of the CDC researchers and they've been getting stuff out. So we're, we're pretty confident that suicide rates in 2020 in the U.S. were down by about 5.6%. Um, which is continuing the trend of 2019, where they were down by about 2%. Okay. Um, so, 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 yeah. So can we just maybe then shift to, uh, on that note, so you're saying that um, during COVID, suicide deaths in the United States are down 5.5%. Um, mm-hmm. And you, there has been <clears throat> all this talk, probably around the world, about this tsunami of, X related to mental health, mm-hmm. right? Tsunami of mental illness, tsunami of suicide, yeah. tsunami of yeah. addiction. And, you know, <clears throat> I, I, I should say, you know, I've probably even used that um, in my conversations from sure. time to time because it's just become so much part of the, it's the cell. It's essentially, mm-hmm. it's the cell of something, right? And in yeah. my instance, it might be the cell of, well, government should do more to support mental health therefore you know and so you create mm-hmm. this narrative that may not be based on yeah. uh, evidence and so you've been kind of rallying against um the notion of tsunami as it relates i think specifically to suicide but maybe more broadly and so yeah it, and i think you've got a lot of uh, you've got a lot of pushback maybe from folks sure and so maybe just talk about you know, why you thought it was important to take that on and, and how the reaction's been across. And I mean, if we're talking about Twitter, it's like, it's Twitter. Yeah. So we can, <laughs> take that, real. <laughs> we can take that with a grain of something, but, but nonetheless, okay. you know, it's people's opinions and uh, based on emotion that um, are pretty loud. Yeah. You know, first I always say like, what, uh, what is a tsunami? It's this unstoppable, unprecedented, destructive wave. Like, mm-hmm what do you do with a tsunami? You run from it. You don't, uh, you don't tackle it head on. So it's a me- the, even calling it a tsunami right. makes it seem like it's unavoidable and unstoppable. Right. Um, and, and it also means like, you know, if, if a regular wave is a foot, you know, a tsunami is like 30 feet, you know, it's, it's this unbelievably strong signal. Um, and, you know, when it came to, to looking at the suicide numbers, you know, in May, I was saying, you know, we don't know what they're going to do. There's a really good chance that suicide numbers may fall. Like, Mm -hmm. we we don't know how people will respond to crises. And, um, but yet the tsunami is being talked about. And to me, a tsunami isn't an increase. And so you get this moral panic thing, where every time that some place reports of increase in something, you know, suicides in this one county went up by 30%. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's the tsunami. Well, is a tsunami 30%? 
like how much does their how much does their suicide rate change every year? You look at those counties and it's like 60% down and then 70% up and then 30% down and then 25% up and you realize it's a small county they're going to have big variation. So so like a tsunami should be this like incredibly powerful thing that's unstoppable. And and the reason that I resist that language so much is a we don't know it's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, it's okay to signal the earthquake warming a tsunami may approach. I'm fine mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. Being more focused on mental health needs, I wish that was 24-7. I, I'm, I'm sad it's only during a pandemic, but of course we should be looking out for our most vulnerable. We should be really focusing on people with existing mental health illnesses and people who are already marginalized. And, you know, so so being warning about it is okay, right. but then calling yeah. it a tsunami that's coming, that's just a bridge too far. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of these people, like especially, you know, a lot of the, big media types that were on CNN and not in suicidologists, people who, you know, just had ancillary degrees, like Mm -hmm. in, in infectious disease and, Mm -hmm. and even politicians, how do they look now when they talk about a tsunami of suicides, that's going to hit us because the pandemic, well, we don't, we don't know what's coming in 2021, but I, I'm sure that if suicides increase by five, they went down by 5%, say next year, they increase by 5%. What do you mm-hmm. think these people are going to be saying? Oh, there it is. There's the yeah. tsunami of suicides. We called it. I'm like, oh, that's not a tsunami. Yeah, like, yeah. come on. Um, yeah. So, you know, being cautious, wanting to focus on, on um, uh, helping people, being focused on mental health, trying to figure out what we can do to make life less stressful for people, reaching out to the most marginalized, all super worthwhile while endeavors. But I don't think we need to invoke a tsunami of suicides or a tsunami of mental health concerns or tsunami of depression, eating disorders, etc. Mm-hmm. I don't think we need to invoke that. I think mm-hmm. we can just all acknowledge pandemics are really, really, really stressful. Mm-hmm. We have to help each other out during the pandemic. And when we get through this pandemic, if we help each other out, we will be stronger. Mm-hmm. And that type of messaging Maybe it doesn't sell as many headlines. Maybe it doesn't get you on the front page of CNN or get you to be a media talking point, but it helps. It helps people. I can't yeah. see how people are helped by, there's a tsunami of suicides approaching. I can't, right. I can't imagine how people are helped by that. Yeah. And you wrote a, um, you wrote an article. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting the journal, but I have, I have it here. You wrote it with Stan Kutcher and, and one of the yeah. UBC uh, medical journal. Yeah. UBC Medical Journal. Yes, thank you. Spring 2021 edition. And, you know, you you mentioned a few things. And one of the things that stuck out to me was around, you know, the notion of the phenomenon called the pulling together effect, which mm-hmm. I think I've witnessed this, you know, oh, first yeah. in, in my family community. Um, and so I think that perhaps people discount um, how human behavior responds to stress and Mm. they just assume that because a stressful um, societal event is occurring that everybody is going to fold up their tents. Um, I think it really does a disservice to the resilience of society. So maybe talk about uh, the pulling together effect and and how that, how that um, comes to play during the, during COVID. Sure. Uh, sorry, I have a seagull friend who's decided yeah, no, to, I don't know if he's picking up on the microphone. Um, the um, the pulling together effect is really interesting. You know, um, almost every time there's a crisis, whether it's whether it was 9-11 or the Great Recession or, you know, now COVID, there's always this group of mental health researchers who probably 
with the best of intentions. I, mm-hmm. I don't discount their intentions. They will instantly proclaim that this will result in a flood of suicides. Mm-hmm. They'll instantly proclaim it. Um, the um, you know the people that were calling about PTSD rates are going to soar in the wake mm-hmm. of 9/11 or Great Depression is going to cause thousands of unexpected suicides or whatever. Um, they're always quick to do that because, like you said, they focus on the stressful event part of the right. stressful event. Right. Uh, 9-11, I remember watching it. I was in medical school at the time. It was really, really distressing. It shaked your world beliefs. You know, what does safety mean if the right. Twin Towers can come down? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I was in Edmonton at the time at the University of Alberta. We evacuated our our building because we didn't know if we were going to be next. Really? Like, uh, it wow. was it was something. Um and of course, Edmonton was not a high priority target. Um, the, the 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 pulling together effect is this is this really um, demonstrable and felt effect. You see it every time a crisis occurs, but you don't account for it in the stress of that event. Mm. So so it's just the way that our brains work. We we tend to think about how stressful something was, and we forget about all the amazing things that happen. What happens after a flood? a ton of donations to the Red Cross. Right. What happens when a community has a, a house go up in fire? The community rallies together and gets gifts for those people that lost everything in the in the flames. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was coming home every day in, in March, when we didn't know what we were dealing with in the, in the early phases of the pandemic, at seven o'clock every day at NBC, I, I could hear the applause for healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell you, I'm not, I'm not ashamed to admit this. The first time I heard the healthcare heroes chat, uh, clap. I had worked maybe four or five days in a row, very long days. We were in preparation for this thing that we thought was going to come and, and just, you know, we were really worried about it. Mm-hmm. And then I came home and I heard this applause and I just started crying. I went out wow. to the, I went out to my balcony. I was just listening and I was just crying. I called my wife and I said, I can't believe they're applauding for us because my wife is mm-hmm. also a, a healthcare worker. You know, we had to go in. We didn't have a choice of staying home. We were in at right. work. Yeah. We didn't have enough PPE at the time. We didn't know how to protect ourselves, but we were just yeah. working. And, you know, it was incredibly uplifting to have the community come together. And so the pull together effect is this recognition that in times of crisis, when communities pull together, it can actually protect against suicide. Um, we see it almost every single Christmas time, every single holiday mm-hmm. time. Pretty much every culture in the world has an end of year celebration where family comes together. And, and at the end of the year, December, um, we see a decrease in suicides as people come more together. There's mm-hmm. this myth out there that holidays are associated with suicides. When in fact, the reverse is true. Um, holiday season in, in late December, early January is associated with a really, really sharp decrease in suicides. Mm-hmm. And, and pulling together is a strong effect that can counter a lot of the negative effects of a stress. It's how we survived all of the calamities that humanities have survived mm-hmm. in our millions of years of evolution because we're societal. We help each other out. Um, so the pulling together effect was very quickly discounted by these experts. Um, they they assumed that the death and and the implications of the pandemic would override people's abilities to cope, and we would see this extreme rise in suicides or mental health conditions. And instead, what we're seeing is kind of what you'd expect: people reporting on surveys that they're more distressed. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing major outcomes of major mental health concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, suicide certainly being the strong one, but even in terms of emergency presentations to hospitals. Mm-hmm 
they're about where they were before the pandemic started. Um, mm -hmm. It's not like there's this huge wave. Um, so, you know, I think the pulling together effect probably did a lot for us. Yeah. Well, um, we I think so. Go ahead. Uh, well, we also had in Canada, at least, we had a pretty strong governmental response to mm -hmm. protect a lot of people. Um, it, it probably wasn't enough and it, it ended too quickly, but there were a lot of wage protections for people who are working. Uh, there was a lot of spending done by the government at the people during this time of economic hardship. And almost all of the connection we have between employment and suicide tells us that when governments spend during times of unemployment, it completely mitigates the suicide effect. So all of these predictions mm -hmm. of, oh, we're going to have 13% uh, you know, rise in, in unemployment, so suicides are going to go up by thousands. There's even a paper done by a U of T epidemiologist, and not a very, not a very, um, uh, doesn't hold up well to time, that basically mm -hmm. predicting how many suicides would be due to unemployment. But when you spend, when the government spends during unemployment periods, the suicide rate is basically negligible. It doesn't change at all. And so governments have a large role to play. And I think our government helped. Mm. Yeah. And and just back to the pulling together effect, which I find you know, there's something there's something profound and beautiful about that. Um, mm. You know, when when such and, and it's I think it, it, it's somewhat sad too, where it takes something like COVID-19 for us as a community to really yeah. um, take off our masks and become community, like really, really community minded and just mm -hmm. think about the, the broader society. But I think it's, yeah. it, it's quite profound. And, and I, I totally agree that I think when times are at their worst, that's when society can, can be mm. at its best. But we do actually recognize it because almost all of the post-event stories that come out of the news are always the warm, how a community pulled together mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. But we disconnect those things in our brain. The event was the event, and then this thing is just this feel-good thing that happens afterwards. Right. But that, right. that thing that happens afterwards is a direct response to the event. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the net, um, it, it is sad that people have to have crisis to pull together. But humans do it all the time. You know, I, I, I'm on Twitter all the time. I see someone tweet like, I need help with X. And then a yeah. whole bunch of people just kind of jump on and say, hey, here's, I can send you one. You know, when people reach out and when communities work together, it's really incredible how much you can boost someone's resiliency. You can make someone kind of at their lowest point recognize, you know, all these strangers are willing to help you out. You're part of mm -hmm. something larger. And yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. And the, the coolest thing for me is not only the benefit to the recipient, but it's the benefit to the giver because <laughs> that, you know, um, I think that's something that's, you know, people talk about it, but it's so understated that to, to lend a helping hand feels so much better than to, to be given a helping hand, you know, and it, there's gratitude yeah. on both sides, but to be able to support somebody, if you have the capacity emotionally, physically, mm -hmm. financially, um, mm -hmm. it, I, I can't underscore enough how how profound of a of a positive feeling that can give you. So, yeah. anyways, yeah. can I can I sh shift gears a bit and, and talk about psychiatry more generally? Sure. Yeah. Um, how would you characterize the state of psychiatry today? Um, you know, I, I always find mental health is in the position of being one of the more prolific health concerns that people have. And 
we don't actually see that reflected in the prioritization of how we fund or support it. Um, mm -hmm. So, and sorry, why know, do you, why do you think like there's been 20 years of these yeah. bell lets? There's 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 so much advocacy work that's been done, and yet still, mm -hmm. um, the 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 funding or the attention is not there when it matters. Why why do you think that is? You know, I, I wonder sometimes about some of the counter effect of these larger campaigns. Like I think mm -hmm. I think sometimes you know, the Bell Let's Talk campaign, I think, is probably I, I don't know if it's net helpful, honestly, because mm -hmm. I wonder if it, for some people it's like, well, I've done my part to help right. mental health. Yeah. I texted yeah. someone today um, and, and I've solved this problem. You know, almost everybody knows someone who has a mental health concern. There's very few people in this world who don't just by the statistics, if you know mm. more than a handful of people. Um, uh, and there's still this othering of mental health. I think we, you know, it, it's still often to me comes down to stigma um, in, in, even on the economic side of funding mental health, it's like, Oh, here's all this money for healthcare. And here's some amount for mental health. Mm. And wait a second, good mental health care is health care. Right. You will see good outcomes on your health care measures if you support people's mental health. Um, you know, this dualism of mental health versus everything else is part of that really large stigma that I think is is, is just hard to change. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you work with people who have strong physical illnesses, like say someone who has a debilitating rheumatological disorder, if you support their mental health, their rheumatological disorder is better mm -hmm. um and and it doesn't mean they have mental health problems to begin with mm -hmm. but if you're always trying to deal with just the severely mentally ill you, you you can't deal with people who have marginal issues or even people that you're on the lookout for because you you lack capacity so i always think that the othering of of mental health concerns is is largely responsible mm -hmm. you know the, this idea that well it happens to those people um, allows it to be something that, that just gets marginalized. And it's just been marginalized forever and ever. I know for a fact that we could probably get 50 more psychiatrists in Vancouver and there'd still be a need for more psychiatrists. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the, the idea that, um, you know, that we're underfunded is almost like a, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's yeah. an understatement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what, sorry, I, I cut you off when I asked the first question, but the state of psychiatry in terms of you know, if it was a stock, are you, are yeah. you, are you bullish on the state of psychiatry? Um, oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah, certainly. You know, you know, like psychiatry has to be humble about its, its status, its status as a science. Mm -hmm. um, things are overhyped all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some fMRI study will be announced and it'll be in the papers as if it's changed the game right. and it probably hasn't changed the game at all. Right. It, you know, there's more connections of the neurons in our brain than there are visible stars in the sky. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, the idea that we're going to be able to master the biological content of our brain mm -hmm. through things like, you know, take a take a pill or take some substance and and make yourself make all of your problems go away is is really it's not where psychiatry is or headed. You know, I've been training new psychiatrists now for 12 years and we are all about uh, our training is all about social determinants of health and um, the importance of combinations of, of approaches, how, you know, um, 
how psychiatry has has had in the past and continues to engage in some abusive practices and how how you can't be a part of that you know this generation of psychiatrists that's coming out i would put all of my money in them mm. they are so well rounded mm -hmm. they are so um they you know i'll i'll go to a resident research days and uh, i'm not kidding when i say more than half of the presentations are on social determinants of health. And if, if that's a direction that I would have liked to steer psychiatry in, it would have been that because no one else is doing it. Very mm -hmm. few other areas of healthcare are, are getting themselves involved with social areas. And if that's something that psychiatry has to pick up to improve the lives of people, then they should. And that's what this generation of psychiatrists is doing. Mm -hmm. I'm so honored uh, to know that this generation is going to be replacing me. Um, they're, they're really great. So Tyler, what do you, what role do you see biological psychiatry having in the, in the future? Um, I mean, biology is, you know, it's, it's a tool. Um, you know, I, I, I do, um, uh, like the biology of psychiatry is going to be adding tools that help us. Um, this idea that, um, psychiatry is all biomedical um hasn't been true for a really long time mm -hmm. now, now someone's clinical experience could be i saw a psychiatrist and they prescribed x drug you have to understand that psychiatrist can't prescribe um time off work um or here's money so you don't have to work or uh, all these other things that we may recognize um but you know the the as we develop research into the fundamental biologies of how our brain works it's laying foundations for the future. And that's that's where I always get, you know, I understand the frustration about how these biological endeavors haven't panned out to clinical results yet, mm -hmm. but we're, 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 we're dealing with a very complex organ. The brain is easily the most complex organ in the body. And all of this foundational work does pay off. And I'll give a, a very specific example. In, in prior to 2010, if you presented a hospital with mania, and it was sudden onset and you were just talking a mile a minute and you were moving around and constantly in motion and um you know you would be admitted and you'd be treated as someone who has bipolar disorder um in in 2017 onwards 2012 was when we discovered it, in 2017 onwards you'd be worked up for a condition called anti-ndma receptor encephalitis um, this is a, a type of encephalitis where the brain is basically attacking itself um, and it causes psychiatric presentations. Mm. And it was through funding through the National Institute of Health that these disorders were discovered. Mm -hmm. And it is through all of the basic clinical research that we've done on um, how to combat autoimmune illnesses that we've developed treatments for autoimmune receptor encephalitis. And it's to the point now that when someone comes in with abrupt symptoms that have, uh, you know, uh, really quickly come on and there doesn't seem to be a good explanation for it and it's not in their family history and there's something atypical about their presentation, we're routinely now checking for anti-NDMA receptor encephalitis. Mm -hmm. This became part of clinical practice. And obviously uh, an encephalitis caused by an autoimmune response to the brain, we would call that very biological. but. Right it can cause psychiatric disturbances. And so now that we know that this can be a cause of psychiatric disturbances, we check for it in people with disturbing, acute, severe presentations. And so that would be an example of how a bio uh, some biological knowledge has added to our practice. 
and people who receive that diagnosis will now be treated and helped. Whereas we, we, you know, there was an epidemiological survey showing that people on chronic mental health wards, um, uh, about 10 to 15% of them had this autoimmune encephalitis, you know, encephalitis. Wow. It was just not known. Wow. Um, now maybe that's an inflated number, you know, it was a small sample and, mm -hmm. and I've never seen the follow-up to it, but I'm sure that prior to 2010, there were people being diagnosed with mental health conditions that were being given treatments that had no chance of helping their autoimmune encephalitis. So, um, so, so biology develops our knowledge over time. It's slow and gradual. Mm -hmm. This foundational biological understanding of our brain is going to help us understand how our brain functions and will help us develop treatments. However, there's so many practical applications. Say we figured out exactly in the brain where an anxiety feeling comes from. Say there's this one point. How do we deliver something to that point in the brain? We have to go through the skull. We have to go through the actual right. brain matter. Uh, you, you know, like we, we don't have even the technology to influence the brain mm -hmm. uh, physically um, through anything specific. So there's so much foundational work that has to be done. I think people often in the hype train, when they do something foundational, they'll get it out there as hype as we've now on our way to solving problem X, but we right. could be 20 years away or 30 years away from solving problem X. So I think the hype train gets oversold and then it does psychiatry disservice. Yeah. I know that, you know, a lot of my workup, you know, I work with kids in emergency situations and these are kids that present and they can present really, really, really ill. Um, you know, total change of behaviors, total change of thinking, inability to recognize things that they should be able to recognize. And my workup starts at the very biological. I want to make sure that there aren't medical causes mm -hmm. for this change. And because of the research that's been done, the things that I can test for has expanded and expanded and expanded mm -hmm. to the point now that if I go through that battery and, you know, I don't find anything, it's it's much more relieving than it was mm. 20 years ago, 30 years right. ago, where there was a small battery to be done. Right. Um, so, um, so I, I think biology plays a large role. I, I, I don't think it should be oversold in psychiatry. Psychiatrists love to talk to patients. Psychiatrists, when they see patients, one of the first things they do after they see them is they develop a formulation. What are all of the factors in this person's life that have led them to come to my office today? Mm -hmm. The social factors, the biological factors, the history factors, you know, all of the things that have happened in the way that they think and their relationships and how have those things all come together to, to this presentation that I see today. And the output of that is, you know, we put it into a diagnostic code and we prescribe some form of evidence-based treatment, but there, there starts with an, a desire to understand people on a whole level. And psychiatrists need to be given time and space to be able to do that because they want to. Mm. Um, of course, the system we work in, you know, we're overloaded and, mm -hmm. and we've become consulting prescribing machines. Right. But um, given our free will, we would be spending time with our patients really trying to understand what's going on for them. A lot of people can be helped without biology. And I had, uh, yeah, that's very well said. It's not an, it's not an either or. It's a, it's a, we need both. Um, if we think about social determinants of health and also the bio biological um, underpinnings of how the brain works. Um, so Alan Francis, whom I had on the, the podcast, we talked a lot about the DSM and uh, medicalizing normal. Just wanted to get a few thoughts from mm -hmm. you on what, what you, what's your, how do you think of the, the DSM and 
um, diagnosis in general. Yeah. I can't say I'm the biggest fan of DSM-5. Like, I, I'm not as anti, like, well, Alan Francis did DSM-4, so I understand his, you know, uh, he probably expected a lot more out of DSM-5. DSM-5 had this noble goal of really sharpening up what we did in DSM-4. Um, and then it ended up basically becoming DSM-4.1 with some changed language. Mm. And it didn't really solve any of the central problems with DSM-4. Um, so I can't say I'm the biggest, like the biggest fan of DSM-5. I think it made a few good changes, like the the artificial separation of Asperger and autism, you know, mm -hmm. and, you, know you know, getting rid of that, I think was probably net benefit. Um, but um, when it comes to um, generally in diagnosing, I think people misunderstand what a diagnostic procedure is. Um, people often focus on the diagnostic label that's given. Well, that's a code, you know, that's something that I have to send to the government when right. I'm, you know, billing the government. Um, if I were in the States, it would be to an insurance company. It's just a code saying this is the category I'm putting it in. And the DSM is not set up to be a, an ideological thing. It's not supposed to tell you what caused their illness. It's really just there to say, if you see these syndromes occurring together for a specific amount of time, this could, this is what we're going to call this. It's a classification system, right, right. but the diagnostic procedure, and this is where, you know, a lot of the anti-psychiatry, especially the anti-psychiatry psychologists, because I don't think they understand what medical training is. This is where I think they over-assume what psychiatrists mean by a diagnosis, because the diagnostic procedure is when you take the person's story and all of the other information you can find, you take your objective findings, the things that you yourself see, you synthesize them together into an impression as to what's going on for this person. And then you develop a plan to tackle that impression. Diagnoses are never intended to be infallible statements about who a person is. Mm -hmm. They're with all the information I have, here's all the things I can think of that would explain it. And here's the most likely one. And here's what I'm going to try and do and help this most mm -hmm. likely one. And, and that's what the diagnostic system is. And, and I can understand to a patient, um, I can understand to people who maybe don't understand medical philosophy as much, how it feels like the diagnosis is kind of like this label, like, oh, now you're diabetic, right. or now you're depressed. Mm -hmm. But really, the, the, the label is a classification of a phenomenology, like the, the phenomena that we see before us. It's a classification of it that helps us determine what our approach to it is going to be. Mm -hmm. But there's so much wiggle room in there. I'm right. not, I'm not demanded if I diagnose depression, treat it with X. It's not a demand of me. It's when people have this classification of systems, here's the, here's what the evidence says, consider that in your approach. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, we're very lucky. We don't have as, as draconian guidelines, but we have guidelines that are there to help us. Um, so I think, I, I think there comes a, you know, I, I'm a few, I love teaching diagnosis to to medical students. I'm huge into the philosophy of medicine. There's a really good structure of subjective, objective impression and plan um, that, that reinforces itself, that drives you towards the truth, that allows you to re-examine diagnoses if, if treatments aren't working um, or if, if harms occur. It, there's so many things that go into that, um, that I'm very proud of diagnosis. And, mm -hmm. and, and so on Twitter, it comes out in, you know, the binarization of Twitter. There's people that are like, diagnoses shouldn't exist. And I'm right. like, well, 
if you didn't call it depression, people would call it something else. Right, like, right. what would you call the person who's on the street talking to themselves? Right. You, you have to have a name for that. If you're not going to say, okay, that's those aren't hallucinations, that person isn't psychotic, what are you going to say? Right. The, the part that bothers me is the confusion of diagnosis and etiology and cause. Um, because so many of the anti-diagnosis people really believe that trauma is at the heart of all mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I can say unequivocally, it's not. Um, mm -hmm. Trauma is not at the heart of all mental illness. Um, if if you if if I walked through life and then all of a sudden I had this anti NDMA receptor encephalitis attacking me, I would become very mentally unwell at that time. Mm -hmm. um, there's lots of people with personality disorders that do not come from broken homes or have not been subjected to a significant abuse. Um, now it's more prevalent in certain disorders, but I see a lot of the anti diagnosis people wanting to say. We're going to remove all of the biological and all of the psychological, and we're just going to focus on the social. It's mm -hmm. all about trauma and things that have happened to you in the past. That's all. And we've done that before. That's what the pre 50s psychiatry was. Right, right. That's, you know, prior to having science in the mix, it was all what's happened to you and let's look at your past. And it was all Freudian analysis and all these, that's yes. all it was. Yes. And it's not like things were leaps and bounds better. Um, so, you know, I, I think that confusion of diagnosis and etiology is where I see a lot of the frustration come in. And, and just on trauma, because it seems to have, you know, there's been a reemergence of trauma being, as you say, you know, the underpinning of significant mental illness into adulthood. What role, like how significant from your perspective as a child psychiatrist does trauma play in onset of a, a mental a, diagno a diagnosable mental illness into adolescence and adulthood well, that's a great question i mean and sorry i'm now i have sirens um okay. the um uh it's a it's a really great question you know trauma is a major um it's a major fire starter in someone's life um, you know, when someone has uh, an early trauma, it can cause lots of challenges with how they approach the world, how they trust other people, how they're seen, how they're treated, um, and how they might um, even consider themselves. Um, a lot of kids, especially, um, you know, younger kids when they're being abused, um, kids know what's going on, but they can't interpret it properly. So they'll right. internalize it a lot and they'll make it about mm. themselves. And it's some quality about them. I'll work with lots of survivors of trauma who will blame their four-year-old self for not fighting back. And it's mm -hmm. like you were four, you know? And um, so when trauma occurs, it's a, it's a really significant thing. Um, you know, I, I do a, I did a Twitter thread on, on, on true prevention of suicide. And one of my arms of that would be, systemically and you know you know with significant funding and effort ending child abuse mm -hmm. um i mean if you really wanted to prevent suicides in this world mm -hmm. um starting with ending child abuse would be a really good place to go you mm -hmm. know and, and child maltreatment um but obviously that's easy to say and very hard to do um so i i i think trauma plays a really large role um in that order, when you think about trauma causing a large role, it's undeniable. When you go the reverse order, when someone has a problem, it's because they've had trauma. 
it becomes a lot more complex. You mm -hmm. know, if A leads to B, it doesn't necessarily mean that B is caused by A. And, you know, it's a basic logical fallacy. And, uh -huh. and I see a lot of diagnosticians, a lot of clinical psychologists, a lot of advocates, um, maybe from their own experience, because mm -hmm. they had trauma growing up mm -hmm. and they had this thing. They, they can't see the larger position that, say, a public psychiatrist like myself does. You know, I, I see people whose trauma has unbelievably impacted them. And I see other people who've had trauma who it has not impacted them that much. In fact, they've been extremely resilient in the face of that trauma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they've they've developed nothing but healthy coping strategies. I've seen people with no history of trauma with severe mental illness, and I've seen people with histories of trauma with mild mental illness or no mental illness. So, so you know, this idea that a you know trauma is the central factor is is overplayed. But man, uh, I mean, the things that I see, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I, I obviously I can't share them. But even sharing the concept of them would crush a lot of people. I mean, mm -hmm. there is severe trauma going on to kids in this world, and um, and and si significantly tackling it starts with supporting parents. It supports with it. It, it starts with um, you know programs that are designed to enrich children, young children's lives. Mm -hmm. um, such that if they live in areas of deprivation, that they have an enriched life. Um, ending areas of depra deprivation would likely have an increased um, protective effect against child abuse because we know one of the risk factors for being abused as a child is um, is living in a chaotic environment, mm -hmm. living in an environment mm -hmm. of deprivation. So, um, so you know, trauma is super important, and I'm I'm very okay with focusing on trauma. Mm -hmm. I think you know, if we really wanted to change a lot of the problems we have. It would start with focusing on trauma, but as a be-all end-all, you know, I, I just can't go there. Right. Yeah. And it's. Yeah. I I read this, um, and I'll, I'll wrap up here shortly because I know we, we're going to be at time soon, and I have a couple mm -hmm. easier questions for you. But I'm just sure. reading um, right now from the ashes by um, Jesse Thistle. Have you? Oh, I haven't heard of it. No. Um. Anyways, it's a story of. It's a story of, of trauma and um, addiction and growing up as a young Métis boy in Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, and just the traumas that he had to endure with his brothers as a young mm -hmm. three, four, and five-year-old. And I could only, you know, given my upbringing, um, which was fairly stable, um, mm -hmm. I, I can't even fathom how that would impact your your, your paradigm of the world. So, um, yeah. anyways... Um, Couple, couple of questions for you bef before we let you go. Um, just curious on who some of the most influential thinkers in your lifetime have been and have informed kind of the way yeah. you think about work and life. I, I, I owe so much of my sort of communication efforts to some of the really good skeptical thinkers, the science skeptics. Mm -hmm. um, so Stephen Novella, the skeptics guide to the universe, um, probably one of my big science heroes and his whole team okay. there. Um, the, um, you, you know, for me, my, my passion for science and knowledge comes from like, like the Carl Sagan's, like the, mm -hmm. the ones that just, they, they made you wonder about the world in a way that um, it, it just fuels like a, a total curiosity. Um, you know, I, I, I can't say that I'm like, massively well-read. I, I appreciate anybody who takes information, presents it in a way that tells you, here's what I know, 
but I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that, and, and that's what I loved about, you know, Carl Sagan. That's what I still love about Steve Novella. Um, you, you know, here's someone who's been, you know, fighting pseudoscience for 20 years and still, um, has wonderment of all the things that he doesn't know, you know, and it's so easy when you're fighting pseudoscience to get into the, um, they're so stupid. They believe this, you know, I'm, I'm so smart compared to these people. How could they believe that, you know, bleach would cure autism or whatever Mm -hmm. else, but he, he maintains an incredible, um, empathy. So certainly my, my thought hero would be Steve Novella. Sorry, is he on Twitter? Does he act? He's not. Um, he's not. Um, uh, I, I think he may have a, a Twitter page, but I don't think he's, he's active, active on it. Okay. Yeah. But um, his, but the, the, the podcast he hosts, uh, not to plug another podcast yeah, in yours, no, but no, the no. podcast that he hosts, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, um, honestly, just one of the best science podcasts in the world. And, and if you want to know how to think better, um, it's just a great one. Oh, that's, that's great. I'll definitely, I'll definitely check it out. I hadn't, um, I hadn't heard of it before. So that's, mm-hmm. That's awesome. Um, one last quick question in terms of things that excite you about the future of mental health treatment. Um, I've obviously gone down, like, cause I've, I've always been, you know, I was really into repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation and mm-hmm. responded that, you know, and so, you know, cause in part as a person who raises money for mental health, it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do unless it's a building or because it's not as yeah. though they have the, the gamma knife or some six. So there's never any, any things, you know? And so in part, mm-hmm. you're like, wow, this is really interesting. And then psychedelics comes along and it's mm-hmm. just become this thing, which I, I think you've wrote some skeptical comments around just some of the, the, the research that's been done, but um, what, what, what excites you? Like the integrated youth services and foundry in BC, is that yeah. something that you well, think? Is- well, what I look forward to the most is, um, because I'm such a tech head, you know, I, I love the idea of combining because I work with kids and mm-hmm. kids are so tech fluent. Yeah. Anything to me that combines technology, accessibility and communicating with kids mm-hmm. is is just it's so exciting to me. Like right now we have all of these old stodgy rules. Like if I'm a physician, right. you know, I have to do X, Y and Z. Um, and but I can imagine some time where. I'm communicating really real time with a kid in distress when they need me mm-hmm. um, because kids are often like that. They're really happy to talk when they need to. And then as soon as the moment's over, they don't want to talk. Right. Um, uh, you know, and, and more of a connectedness, you know, when I see the kids embrace of social media, everybody wrings their hands about that and says, Oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, this is going to be awful. Um, but think what, what always blows me away is how socially aware and passionate this generation of kids mm-hmm. is. So, you know, here I am a child psychiatrist. I'm working with kids all the time. I see, you know, kids in the most amount of crisis. And the one thing that excites me the most, the generation of kids that's replacing all of us old, bigoted, mm-hmm. st- you know, stodgy, conservative, um, really discriminatory people. Mm-hmm. This generation of kids is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't wait to see the world that they create. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way they use technology is so less functional and so more artistic that there's going to be such creative ways to solve problems that we wouldn't have even been able to, to anticipate with our old brains. So I really look forward to that. Okay. And so do you think that, um, 
a virtual care in terms of you having a one-on-one session with a child, um, in terms of effectiveness versus in-person? Yeah, to me, effectiveness is availability and practicality. You know, there's a lot of people who, for whatever reason, we would have no-shows. And sometimes it was economic. They had to take two Mm -hmm. buses to come Mm -hmm. see me. Sometimes it was scheduling. They had a basketball game and they couldn't make it. Sometimes it was personal. They weren't feeling under the weather. Um, but so, so making yourself more available and using virtual technology will almost certainly improve efficacy. And the other thing that everybody needs to see, and once you see it, it helps so much in being a participant in your health is, is tangible results, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. actual practical results. You know, if, if a kid comes to me because they're in suicidal distress and I ask them what's going on in their life, what's going on for you? And they give me a laundry list of things that are attacking them. I say, okay, I'm going to call your school. I'm going to ask them to give you a break for no homework for the next couple of weeks and maybe forgive your term. Just give you the marks you got last year, last week, last term. Don't worry about this term. Just focus on rest, relaxation, connecting to your counselor. Go to school for the social elements. Don't worry too much about the academic. They, they, of course, you know, I, I don't know if that intervention makes them better or not. But when they come back to see me, they're thrilled to come see me because they're they're happy to report things are so much better now mm-hmm. that I don't have to worry about mm-hmm. homework for the next little mm-hmm. while. And so practical would mean I have problem X. Can you help me with problem X? And you know, if I'm setting up appointments with someone every four weeks, I'm basically relying on the randomness of in the last few days, have, is there anything I can be helpful to you right. for? But the more, you know, if I can make myself available without burdening myself to always be on because that's not possible, mm-hmm. I see virtual technology really helping, mm-hmm. helping with that. So I think it's going to be really cool. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. I'll I'll stop there. I just want to plug your own Twitter here, because um, yes. you're, you're, you're well. You're a great follow, and you 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 provide very very um, useful information to those interested in this um, area of mental yeah. health. And uh, occasionally, I, star pictures. So it's not uh, yeah. All, well, I like the star pictures. Not all heavy too. threads. <laughs> at, at, at Tyler Black thirty two on Twitter. Um, yeah. Tyler, you've been very gracious with your Thanks time, so and I thoroughly enjoyed yeah. talking to you. And uh, keep doing. Uh, all the great work you're doing in BC. It's, it's really important and uh, you're helping a lot of people. So thank you. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. You as well. Bye.